0: afternoon. Good evening. See that we have uh, some Kalyanamitta in uh, Europe, in India, Arab States, Southeast Asia, Australia. Nice to see you all. I believe it's the ninth day, the last day of the online retreat. I guess, the most important or relevant, perhaps useful, subject to talk about today would be how does our increased level of inspiration and clarity, confidence and well-being, which is a quite common experience on the last days of a retreat, how does that now get channeled and how does it manifest as an increased effort in our daily life and uh, a commitment to consistency so it's good to give a little thought to this but i thought i'd give a little A few kind of background stories i hope will illustrate some points when we recollect the time of lord buddha after his enlightenment when he was considering who he could teach who might understand what he had penetrated to experienced purified his mind, liberated his mind by realising. He at first considered his first two teachers, uh, the teachers who taught him the first two of the Arupajanas and another teacher who taught him the second two of the Arupajanas, great masters of the most subtle and profound forms of Samadhi and he realized that they had already passed away and were abiding in brahma realms and were in a in a state where their mind was not receptive to listening to the teachings and contemplating the teachings because they were absorbed in one-pointedness profound concentration but then he realized the five ascetics who he had practiced the extreme austerity with for a period of years he saw that their faculties their spiritual powers were sharp enough developed enough he had reviewed the samsaric situation and had seen that although it is the truth that most beings minds were in a state where they would not be able to comprehend the teaching of the buddhas buddha dhamma There were other beings who were like, he gave the analogy of lotus, small lotus buds, still close to the mud in muddy water, not yet capable of blossoming. But as he investigated the situation, he saw that there were numbers of lotus buds closer to the surface that were quite plump with merit. And then there were also those above the water partially blossomed and they were, they were the ones were ready to fully blossom and when he considered the minds of the ascetics that he had practiced with he saw that they were indeed ready so he wandered in stages from the Bodhi tree to the deer park near modern-day Varanasi and uh, these guys are interesting they, they had felt that the Bodhisattva, when he decided to take a bath and decided to have a meal. They accused him of backsliding and reverting to luxury. And they uh, did not, there's it's it's a, it's a few interesting points here. The Bodhisattva had had an accurate insight that the path of austerity, absolute extreme of austerity was not going to lead to liberation. It was a true and accurate insight. But of course, the kind of people who have the resolution, the patient endurance, the determination to actually practice like that, they're not going to give it up easily either. They're uh, particularly tough and particularly uh, resolute. So so he wandered off and he, he explored his middle way of combining some concentration and uh, taking care of the body so it has enough nutriment and then to contemplate skillfully and that was his middle way and it did indeed lead to his enlightenment but when he approached these uh, five summoners these yogis uh, i think the elder of them said don't don't get up and take his robes and bowl but uh, do make a seat for him or something like that like don't show him full respect but when uh, he approached and they couldn't help themselves, one of them got up and took his robe and took his bowl and set him up a seat. And uh, But at first they didn't want to listen to him. They said, how could you, how could you have realized anything? You reverted to luxury. can like, imagine this, talking to a fully realized Buddha saying, you don't know what you're talking about. And apparently it was a ampi and a ampi for a second time, for a third time. And the Buddha had to say, look, have I ever said this to you before? i have realized the deathless please sit down and listen and they did and uh, it's said that when reciting the dhamma Chaka sutta anya kondanya attained to stream entry and that's when the wheel of dhamma was set in motion in the world that no brahma no deva no mara no human could stop and uh, because it has so much profound merit and the teaching itself was a uh, profound and stands on its own as a wisdom teaching in the following days when lord buddha explained the anathalakana sutta he the, all of them attained to arahanship but the thing i wanted to talk about which is when it, where it starts to get interesting for me because It's all interesting, all due respects to those uh, five wonderful, austere and ascetic, but the point I'm trying to make is, I'm not surprised that spiritual practitioners of such heroic ability would become enlightened when listening to the Buddha. But what's interesting is a couple of days later, a kind of a spoilt and soft merchant's son uh, wanders out of his uh, rich home because apparently as the legend goes his uh, harem who were entertaining him with instruments had fallen asleep and he woke up and he saw them dribbling and drooling and snoring and he'd never seen such a a horrible disheveled sight in his life being so protected and he was distraught (laughs) and uh, so as the story goes he put on his gold slippers and he wandered off into the darkness saying, It's awful, it's terrible, it's awful, it's terrible. And uh, due to his merits, he wanders into the deer park. And Lord Buddha says, Come here, Yasa. Let me explain something to you that isn't awful, isn't terrible, isn't horrible. And uh, Yasa sits down. And. Uh, Again, with a single conversation, Lord Buddha explains the benefits of dana, the benefits of sila, the benefits of mental cultivation. And uh, Yasa becomes a stream enterer. So this is interesting. It's interesting. Of course, a little bit later, uh, some of Yasa's friends, I can't remember the exact number, I can't remember if it's 20 or 40, but the merchant's friends come and uh, they also listen to a few dhamma teachings and many of them become enlightened. And Lord Buddha tells them, head off in all of the eight directions, teach this Buddha dhamma far and wide. And they were able to, yesterday we had some ordination ceremonies, and those uh, original disciples were given permission to take uh, their own uh, disciples. then according to the biography the next really big event is when the Kassapa brothers three three brothers have followings of matted hair fire worshipping ascetics I believe one brother had around 200 another had around 300 another had 500 disciples eventually Lord Buddha taught them the fire sermon And while listening to the fire sermon, all 1,000 matted-hair fire-worshipping ascetics became arahants. And then Lord Buddha, with a large following now, was going to need a place of residence for his following. And so they headed off to Rajgir, where the king, Bimbisara, had uh, asked Bodhisatta, it's a quite a beautiful story where the bodhisattva is wandering through Rajgir already as a samana and uh, king Bimbisara sees him and is so impressed by his uh, demeanor appearance kind of that he asks him i can tell that you're from a noble family could you please uh, share rulership of my kingdom with me and the bodhisattva says no i'm not interested in these things i see danger in these things I'm looking for the deathless." So impressed was the king. He said, Okay, we'll have my kingdom. He wanted, he was truly impressed by this being and wanted to uh, observe him. And uh, the Bodhisattva says, No. Siddhartha Gautama says, No, I see danger in these things. These things are bound by death. I'm looking for the deathless. And then King Bimbisara says, Well, when you find it, come back and teach me. And the Bodhisattva made a commitment to doing that. So he did go back to Rajkya, the king offered him the bamboo grove, the first monastery. But having given a little glimpse of some of those early days of the Buddha's teaching career, one thing that's not mentioned specifically, but I suspect may be the case, <coughs> is because many people wonder, you know, I read the Dhamma Chakra Sutta. I chant the Dhamma Chaka Sutta, I can remember it by heart. Many people have done that, but they didn't become stream-enters. Many of us have read the Anātā Lakkana Sutta, it's very clear. We can understand it as a concept. Body, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, none of these things self. but when we read it, for some reason, we don't become arahants. So what's going on? I can't tell you this as a fact, but it's my personal suspicion that uh, the thousand matted hair, fire-worshipping ascetics were probably stream enterers. One of the things that it's said about people who become stream enterers, sotapana in Pali, is that they will become enlightened. It will be impossible for them to have more than a seventh birth. But many sotapanas do have some subsequent births before their final birth. Was that the case for Yasa, the merchant's son? It makes sense to me, it makes sense to me that why some people when hearing one teaching on one occasion or one verse, can have a profound realization. From what I've heard, when stream-enters attain to a human birth, there seems to be some ignorance seeps back in temporarily, it seems to be part of the consequence of coming to the human realm and having a womb birth that some darkness and some ignorance comes back into the mind but when they practice they get quite good results quite quickly and they tend to have a great deal of faith I can tell you about Lumpur a little bit about Lumpur nun's childhood experiences he when he would go to the temple with his mother just in looking at the Buddha statue I'm talking as a four or five-year-old little boy, his hands would stand up in rapture, and he didn't know what it meant, but in looking at Buddhas, he felt rapturous. There's a song, a, a folk song in Thai, about the beautiful qualities of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and uh, when they sung it at school, on the one pra, on New Posse Today. Ajahn Chah, again Ajahn, Anand's hairs would go up on end and tears would roll down his face. So as a like a young boy, seven, eight, nine, having not really studied the Buddha's life story, not really understanding what a Buddha was, but talking about the qualities of a Buddha, he's experiencing rapture and he's asking his friends, do your hands stand up on end? Do you have tears streaming down your face? And sure enough, they didn't. Some particular karmic affinity coming from past practice so whenever you have these incidents of monks that get quite wonderful results early on in their practice and seem to develop quite a bit within a decade or two I think it's safe to presume there has been some very good practice before I think in the case of Lord Buddha when many people receive one teaching and uh, become enlightened, a lot of people have probably made the vow in past lives and even in this life, that they want to witness a teaching Buddha. We develop so much love and reverence and respect for Buddhas. We want to meet one. We want to see one. We want to see how wonderful they are. So a lot of people make that aspiration. May I become an Arahant while listening to a teaching of a Buddha? The various things that we hold as our deepest aspirations, they have consequences. It means that if you had the ability to be an arahant before that, but you have this attachment, it will delay the final result. But the final result will come in the way that you have prayed and determined and dedicated merits and, and aspired for. Even so, I'm just remembering another story now, is to make another point. One monk who's really good at remembering the actual sutta, the actual occasion, the actual name of the bhikkhu is Ajahn Amro. I don't have that ability. But what I can do is I can tell you, you you can go and ask Ajahn Amro. I remember him telling me a story of uh, one of those phrases that said in the suttas that Lord Buddha gave this teaching to such and such a bhikkhu. And in no short time, he too became one of the noble ones. And the commentary for that particular bhikkhu said, Ajahn Amru was telling us, the commentary said that bhikkhu had to practice for 15 years, and then he became one of the noble ones. So in the time of the Buddha, we don't hear so much about those with the, whose faculties weren't fully ripe, who, who didn't become an Arahant, a taryatrans of one verse or a second teaching of course there must have been there were many many arahants and many anagamis but there were also many that would have had to work quite hard to get their stream entry and many that once they were stream entrants had to work quite hard and quite long to to shake off those final fetters but it all does depend this is a lord buddha refers to his teaching as a gradual training and it's uh, he also re- refers fairly consistently to the to the concept of dependent co-arising because of these previous conditions this occurs because of this there is that and so in the case with anybody that seems to develop quickly or get enlightened quickly it's because they did a lot of practice already for those of us who find ourselves meeting a buddha's teachings nearly 2,600 years after the Buddha is born, who didn't find it easy to attain to jhana samadhi, who don't feel confident that we've experienced Nibbana, we have to humbly admit that we don't have that same level of accumulated spiritual virtue. And what we Humility is a beautiful thing. Humility does not mean being humiliated. Uh, Humility means, I think these two qualities go together. A wholesome humility also goes with a wholesome confidence. These two are linked, I believe. Because when you have a wholesome sense of humility, you know what you're capable of and you know what you're not capable of you know your strength you know your weakness you're truthful but because of that you do know what your strength is as well and when you know where you're at more or less you know where you need to work and we can then knuckle down on doing it so one of the points I'm trying to make is it's a long journey and if we keep walking on the journey, the outcome is assured. And the outcome is wonderful. We all do have this uh, potential. We all do have significant accumulated merits that we are, we have met the Buddha's teachings, that we are able to listen to the well-practiced disciples of Lumpur Char in the lineage of Lumpur Man. This is an obvious sign of a lot of accumulated virtue. But we do have to practice consistently. So if we have the analogy of a long journey, and I was talking the other day about the, what I believe to be the most effective approach to practice in the long run, is to have a plodding approach where we keep gently but determinedly increasing our efforts a little bit and they're not allowing for slipping back because if we we do these kind of retreats and we get so many really good results but then we go back to being busy and we don't do a daily practice and we don't practice and we look at too much news and we look at too much media and we hear too many sad stories and we get upset about things the darkness of the world can come flooding back in and take away all of that radiance all of that brightness all of that clarity it's like a uh, You know, the forest tradition in Northeast Thailand has these wonderful earthy metaphors and analogies. It's like, if you let the buffalo come into the nice clear pool of water, if you allow the buffalo to come in and plod around and roll around in the puddle puddle of clear water, after a few minutes, that puddle isn't clear anymore. You have a puddle of muddy water. So we have to develop some determination there's a, unfortunately there's a sense of overconfidence that can arise at the end of a retreat like, oh I really understand now, I really know how to practice, I really have faith, I'm really going to but something happens with the happiness and the joy, is we can get a little careless and maybe skip a couple of sittings, maybe watch one too many movies or maybe watch a whole series on Netflix or whatever it is And all of a sudden the clarity is gone we notice that the lack of reactivity the the sense of radiance the lightness it's almost where did it go all of a sudden i'm feeling a bit grumpy i'm feeling a bit depressed i'm feeling a bit reactive i'm getting impatient i'm snapping at people this is what can happen if we don't take care of our minds so as we If we understand that it's a long journey, I don't say this to discourage or dishearten anybody, I'm just saying this is the truth, according to how Lord Buddha describes it, a gradual training. What I would like people to consider that, if it's a long journey, every single step forward counts. And Arjuna does say this, that everybody's on the path towards Sotapanna. he has a book Sotapati Magga, the path to stream entry because we talk about levels of enlightenment path and fruit so as long as we practice we're on the path towards stream entry but if we take one step forward and one step back two steps forward three steps back three steps forward two steps back we, we all can understand that we're not going to get very far. And what we need to be quite determined to do, is to take a little step forward, and another little step forward, and another little step forward. And if you do step one foot back, then you need to be determined to step two steps forward. And this, this is probably one of the hardest aspects of Buddha's practice, is the consistency, and the sustainability, I also believe it's if not the most important thing, certainly one of the most important things. Mindfulness is an incredibly wonderful, incredibly profound quality. And it's a true blessing that as human beings, we have the ability to train it, to take our ordinary quality of mindfulness clarify it generate it and learn how to apply it as Lord Buddha says mindfulness leads to the deathless and the four foundations of mindfulness lead to the deathless and merge in the deathless in one of those weeks after his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree when he was contemplating various things for seven weeks you know he would spend a week in the bliss of liberation and come out and contemplate one aspect of the dharma he'd realized and uh, with a sense of awe how did i actually manage this because this is kind of counterintuitive it goes against the stream of the world difficult to obtuse difficult to penetrate why because beings are committed to being selves and they're committed to perceiving things in terms of self and other and so to have the insight into not-self, we need buddhas to explain this to us, how to cultivate the mindfulness, how to cultivate the clarity, how to apply that mindfulness and clarity so that the insight into not-self is the result. Unfortunately, with regards to cultivating mindfulness, well, let's just talk about the wonderful, the wonderful aspect of mindfulness a bit more. The wonderful, one of the wonderful aspects of mindfulness is, If you are consistent in your practice, it gets more and more powerful. In the beginning, we don't really understand how powerful this is. We we can listen to other people tell us, mindfulness is wonderful, mindfulness is powerful. But when mindfulness gets really good, what happens? The sense of being a self falls away. When mindfulness is really, really good, mindfulness knows a body really just is a body. Thoughts really are just thoughts arising due to sense contact arising due to past thoughts. Feelings really are just feelings arising staying for some time ceasing due to sense contact. When there isn't a sense of self there guess what there's no suffering because there's nothing identified with the suffering to have a feeling of suffering and we have to generate quite a bit of mindfulness and we have to be quite intensive in retreat like situations for the mindfulness to get strong enough so that the habitual tendency to feed the ignorance the ignorance isn't fed clarity is fed you know lord we have this greed hatred and delusion on a foundation of ignorance that's the problem we have the eightfold path that's the solution when we what is ignorance? Ignorance is not knowing the ultimate truth. What is delusion? Because we don't know the ultimate truth, we misapprehend things, we, del- we perceive things deludedly. The antidote to that is right mindfulness, right concentration, right contemplation, etc. right thought. And when we generate a lot of that, the ignorance which, which is the root cause of perceiving things as a world and a self and others and the past and the future, that isn't being fed. And a mind with really good mindfulness, when it begins to just know a body as a body, you might be sitting meditation and it's just awareness, the body's just a body. When the feeling of being a self falls away, there's no suffering. Tanajanan describes these experiences as temporary liberations, tatanga vi and when we have those kind of experiences, we can develop great confidence. You see, this practice really works. It might not yet be nibbana, but we can see that when there is good, strong quality of mindfulness, suffering drops away. Different insights that you can have when you have good quality of mindfulness, the vipassana jnanas, when you really have a, an insight, it might be feelings. It's noticing cessation, cessation, cessation. When the mind sees it really clearly with a profound quality of mindfulness and some collectedness there's a sense of letting go letting go of what perceiving things as being a self that's that grasping at things being a self and being permanent falls away the mind experiences spacious clarity It might be aware that there's a body there, but there's no feeling of a self grasping at it, identifying with it. There may still be the feelings, but the mindfulness is aware, arising, ceasing, arising, ceasing, arising, ceasing. And it's blissful. And that's just a glimpse of how wonderful the insights and liberation experiences of genuine practice can become. So having mentioned that, the wonderfulness of mindfulness what it leads to how you can glimpse your ultimate nature your ultimate potential how you can experience liberation this comes from a consistency of practice because mindfulness grows in power and clarity and strength because of consistent practice over a period of years decades lifetimes that's the way it is the bad news is It's much, much easier and much, much faster to damage your mindfulness than it is to bolster it, empower it and strengthen it. So we we really need to just consider this deeply as you're coming out of a retreat situation and set some resolutions. What kind of resolutions? I will sit every morning before looking at my portable device. I like to recommend to people put it on flight mode. You're going on an inner journey don't allow the world don't allow the buffalo to come into the clear water and stir up the mud the moment you wake up meditate get up wash your face brush your teeth come chant if you want to if you're sleepy but sit establish clarity be committed to this it's very important it's the only way our clarity is going to grow in strength and power is if we have a commitment to establishing it and cultivating it and taking care of it At the very least, if we have that one morning session, we've at least set our intentions, getting our priorities right, mental cultivation, training in mindfulness is a priority for me. I do it first, Satu. Then when it comes to how much time we might spend on social media, to be very careful. Need to understand that in the Buddhist time when people were becoming enlightened left, right and center, it seems, People might not hear the news of what happened in another kingdom for six months. You have to wait for somebody on an ox cart to get through the, over the mountain passes and through the valleys and come and tell you six months ago, that kingdom burned down. Oh really, how terrible, what a shame. We need to be aware of how news affects the mind. You watch a lot of news and you can hear about every big disaster in the world as it happens. This isn't going to be helpful for your sense of well-being and clarity and trust that uh, ultimately everything is good, You're gonna, you can liberate your mind. Constantly stimulating fear and anxiety is feeding that hindrance. Reading other people's comments. I think in the last couple of decades, because of the advent of social media, things like Twitter and these various, various things that people can make comments on under YouTube. It's a bit like uh, people in cars experiencing road rage, because they have a little bit of aluminium and glass around them. They think it's okay to honk and yell. They don't feel that someone's going to punch them in the face. So they let it rip. And I think a similar thing happens with uh, social media that people can say all sorts of nasty things because the person isn't, isn't in front of them, and can't retaliate straight away. But I think it's done terrible things to the standards of, of uh, politeness and decency. And if we read too many of these things, the various things people say about politicians, on one level the politicians may, may well deserve to be insulted and people may have reason to be upset. But giving too much attention to that, is not going to help your mindfulness it's not going to help your well-being it's not going to speed you along your path to enlightenment entertainment well, we already have quite a bit of greed hatred and delusion in our minds so if you want to sit in front of a big plasma television you know three meters wide two meters high dolby stereo watch a great war movie watch a great passionate romance and let all this other sex and violence into your mind This also is not going to be helpful, not to mention uh, violent computer games or pornography. So it's good to set clear parameters, make some kind of a commitment to protect the clarity and radiance, the happiness that you're currently feeling. You need to set boundaries with with things that will cause that to degenerate and you're very, we're very lucky these days that uh, monks like Tanajanana are willing to have online retreats share his evening chanting online every day upload so many talks to YouTube and uh, sometimes we, we can take things for granted once we get used to them but we really should be mindful that this, this wasn't the case even in some traditional Buddhist cultures the villagers didn't actually understand what the monks were chanting they had faith. They had faith that supporting the monks was good karma. But they didn't know what the content of the Purita chanting was. They didn't know what the meaning of the Anatalakana Sutra or the Dhammachaka Sutra was. They just believed that coming and meditating, remembering the words, chanting with the monks was good karma, but they did not have the possibility, most people to really study the meanings of suttas with good translations and really hear commentary from well-practiced monks. So sometimes we need to remind ourselves, as, as difficult as things might appear to be becoming in terms of social cohesiveness and ecology and peace and all those other things around the world, like there's a lot of problems, on a personal level many of us have great good fortune. And we shouldn't expect the outer world to be perfectly supportive of our spiritual process. It, it, perhaps in the time of Maitreya Buddha, in 300 million years, it would be. But most of the time it isn't. And the, time that, the way that we develop our spiritual merits and our spiritual virtue is through practicing with adversity, recognizing the, the opportunity that we have and practicing skillfully with it, that's what's going to produce the merit and the karmic affinity to actually be born in that time and actually be able to meet Maitreya. So please put some thought into how you're going to protect your beautiful mind, your wonderful practice, how you're going to nourish the lovely quality of mindfulness so that it becomes truly powerful, that it will lead to the deathless, and merge in the deathless how will you set parameters with uh you know lord buddha describes the five hindrances as bandits as robbers because they steal peace the sensual the sensual thoughts the irritated thought irritated angry thoughts the sloth and torpor sleepiness dullness the restlessness worry anxiety and the doubts So we also, we also should see that things which feed those things, they're also robbers, they're also bandits, they're part of the same gang. And we need to learn how to set boundaries with these robbers, with these bandits. Don't let them steal your peacefulness. Don't let them feed the hindrances that will steal your peacefulness. So, Anamodana for your practice. I wish you all the best in your ongoing efforts. And I hope that something I said may have been helpful. I rejoice in your practice. May we all continue to grow in Buddha Dhamma together. (laughs)